Even though we're in Romans, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. This is a go-to verse in many respects for the interpretation of Romans, the epistle. And a lot of our Sunday mornings are related to that. Just what is Romans, the epistle? What is it as a, in toto, its message? I didn't know how many to expect to see today and was very pleased to see so many. And some from great distances. So Shana Tova. I know you know what that means. It's the good year, the wish of Rosh Hashanah, which in the Jewish calendar today is that day, Rosh Hashanah, followed by 10 days of awe, as it's called, 10 days of awe, leading up to Yom Kippur, the atonement, the Feast of the Atonement. And certainly, we have been standing in awe before that feast ourselves before that atoning work of grace, which is going to become universally manifested to all people on a certain day, which evangelists and preachers and pastors have liked to call the last judgment. That'll be our subject today. Within that sphere of 10 days, we will have this message, next Sunday's message, and in between Wednesday We'll be having our Wednesday teaching and Thursday, my bro in grace. And again, I have to remind people, he actually is my brother-in-law. And I call him brother in grace, which I thought was an, an ingenious quip. But uh, we are that indeed, brothers in grace. And his, he'll be having the Phil Henry Power Gospel right here on Thursday. Within the days of awe, that was divine design. And... So not only show up, but please keep Phil in prayer for his ministry. He undergoes the adversities and the tests and the certain things that all of us have to go through as we bring forth a message that certainly is not popular to the kingdom of darkness. And sometimes it's not even popular among our brethren. I don't go figure. And... Pray also for the financial support of his ministry, and it's a very valuable one, and it's one that I hold very close to my heart. So keep that in mind. Thursday night, and you get to watch him even do retakes once in a while. It's kind of fun. It is a fun time of fellowship, and uh, all are welcome. Thursday night, 7. When times become simultaneous, That's my phrase today that I want to hunker in on. When times become simultaneous. And my prayer this morning, echoed by Pastor Brown's prayer, is that God would produce in us a good hope by grace. Very simply stated in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. And that that good hope by grace would be contagious through us to others and perhaps even a gracious epidemic. With a word to structure of Romans right now, we've actually finished, although kind of superficially, both flanks of Romans, 1 through 4 and 12 through 16 in our midweek services. Now, We're structuring the double center. There's a double center in Romans, and I think it can be structured. And I have a recourse to Ephesians here. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 is a phenomenal interlude in God's symphony because it speaks of all of us being under the power of sin, dead in trespasses and sins, and yet the interlude, the intervention, the intrusion, the incursion, the invasion, if you want to call it that, and that's what apocalypse means, the invasion of God's great love. But God in his great love, it says, God in his great love and in his abundant mercy. And he made us alive while we were dead in sins. He made us alive together in Christ. 
How different this sounds from the ideology of Christianity, which is that heaven is a reward and hell a punishment. Neither is hell a punishment nor heaven a reward. There is a new heavens and a new earth, which is all encompassing in God's grace. That's Christianity. That's the biblical message that's incomprehensible in its grace. And so I put this together simply because Romans, we've said, has a double center. Romans 5 through 8 and Romans 9 through 11. Romans 2, 4, or Ephesians 2, 4 rather, speaks of his great love. And that is the exact theme of Romans 5 through 8, God's great love. It begins with his love whereby he demonstrated it by giving his son by Christ dying while we were yet sinners, while, by reconciling us while we were yet enemies. And that great love is the love that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a love for one another, but a love for the other, a love for enemies. And it's the love of God, the great love of God, which justifies the ungodly. Then on the other end of this, Romans 9 through 11, we deal with the Israel of God, the true Israel, and the identity of Israel, and also that deals with God's abundant mercy. Abundant, all right, it's universal. That verse, that passage climaxes in verse, verses 32 to 36, God has shut up all under disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. And then it explodes into a doxology in 33 to 36, which is a, an expression of great praise. So I've structured the double center of Romans under that one rubric or title of Ephesians 2, 4, God's great love, Romans 5 through 8, God's abundant mercy, 9 through 11. And that really is at the heart of which we have Romans eight thirty one to 32, which is God is for us, and he gave his Son freely over for us all. And that means that God actually exists for us, that he is the God who saves by his very nature, his very will, his very plan. And right also in the heart of this, in Romans 9.16, we hit one of the most controversial matters, and it shouldn't be, that it is not according to him who wills, but him who, or him who runs. It is neither him that wills or him that runs. What is neither of him that wills or runs? All of God's saving plan, but of him, God, who shows mercy. God who shows mercy is at the basis of salvation for the human race, not those who will or those who run. It is God who shows mercy. Heaven isn't a reward, nor is hell a punishment, but it is a new heavens and a new earth by which God encompasses all of his creation. God exists for his creation. His creation came forth from his love and his power and from a word that he uttered. And therefore, his creation is the object of his love. But my subject this morning has to do with when times become simultaneous. And that's why Ephesians 1.10 comes into view. I'm marshalling all the tools I have at my disposal under the gift of teaching that God has graciously granted to me in his power and in his sense of humor. That means exegesis from the Greek text. That means theology. That means preaching. That means teaching. That means a lot of different weaponry in the arsenal here, putting it together. So there'll be a lot of different facets to this to make the message clear because we're at the point of the spear here and we are in the days of awe in God's plan, not just in the calendar of Israel. Ephesians 1.10 has a phrase in the fullness of times or the it's translated sometimes, and pretty much correctly, the fulfillment of times. In the Greek, it's to pleromatos. That's a familiar term, pleroma, which means the totality. Then ton chiron, the times. The fullness or the fulfillment of the times. And it comes from the words pleroma, which again is very 
familiar to us. It's used in Romans 11.25 for the pleroma of the nations. It means the totality of a thing. The the totality without reserve, without remainder of a certain thing. And that's the word pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A. That's a A to E and the omega O, pleroma. And then the word kairos is used, K-A-I-R-O-S, for time or times in plural. It's When it's plural, kairoi, it's times, plural. It can mean events or it can mean epochs of history. It can mean eras, like we call it, this era that we live in. And one day, all of the eras or epochs of history characterized by certain periods of history will become simultaneous. In fact, they already are in God's eyes. He sees all of humanity in one sweep and in one view, in one fell swoop, we could say. And he straddles the whole of time. He's not enslaved enslaved to time like we are. He's not fixed in a certain time like we are. And he is in eternity. So the phrase to pleromatos ton chiron, I think it comes from not only the words pleroma dealing with totality, which is the state of being full, or that which fills. It's both the state of being full and that which fills. For example, it means the sum total in Romans 11.25. The sum total of all the nations in all of their times will come in, says the scripture. And then all Israel will be saved. That's a universal salvation verse or passage. We also have famously that the fullness or the sum total, the totality, we could say, without remainder, And without anything left over, the totality of divinity, of that which is God, is in Christ bodily, somatikos, bodily in the resurrected and ascended, incarnated Son of God. All the totality of divinity is found bodily, incarnate, Colossians 2.9. And in Ephesians 3.17, we have the totality of God. And Paul's prayer that we would come to know the love of Christ, the depth, the height, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ, and be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God is also relating to the final moment that Paul reaches in his prophetic prediction when God is all in all, when God is all in all in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. But here's the idea in Ephesians 1.10. And you can't get the meaning from looking it up in Strong's Concordance or any other concordance, really, to get the sense of this thing. That's where the difficulty is. That's where the fun is. That's where the treasure hunt is. The idea in Ephesians 1.10 with the phrase, the fullness of times, refers to a time, strangely speaking, or call it a moment, if you will, a moment when all times will be simultaneous. In the fullness of times, when all times will be simultaneous. We could say the times of Israel during Moses, the times of Israel during the kings, the times of Israel during the incarnate Son of God's visit to earth. We could say the times of colonial America, the times of modern America, the times of industrial America, the times of characterized by the Vikings or the times characterized by the Mesopotamians or the times characterized by the Sumerians. All this kind of stuff when we study it in college. I, did, I studied archaeology, and you see epochs, times and epochs, when all these epochs, E-P-O-C-H-S, become simultaneous. And that means when all of the sequences of time that we call epochs or historical periods are simultaneous is also, at the same time, when by resurrection of the dead, which follows on the heels of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is called the first fruits of the harvest of the dead, 
That's what he's, his name is. The first fruits of the harvest of the dead, Jesus Christ. Following upon the heels of him is the resurrection of all the dead, all together at once. All of times simultaneous. All of humanity in all of its times, all together. To face what is traditionally known as the last judgment. The last assize. The last evaluation. Would call it whatever you want. So imagine all the times being simultaneous and all human beings from all of those times being all together for the purpose of a last judgment. The judgment will be the universal and the ultimate effect of the judgment of the cross. Now, the reason I'm being fairly even and slow on these things is because For me, these are days of awe. I'm in awe. The judgment will be the universal and the ultimate effect of the judgment of the cross, which happened at the heart of history, in the heart of time, when at another time, all times became simultaneous. All sins of all humanity in all time became concentrated and were condemned in the flesh of the sinless Son of God. That's Romans 8, 2, and 3, incidentally, and other places. As the death of Christ was an exhibition of God's great love for humankind, Romans 5, 8, So the last judgment will be a display and a manifestation of God's great love and universal mercy. That encompasses the double center of Romans. The last judgment, and I'm using that term on purpose just to keep on saying it so that you can hear what what it means and what it says and what the phrase is used, the phraseology. The last judgment, and here's kind of a definition of it, will be God's Trinitarian act of philanthropy, his great love for humankind. Philanthropy. Remember, we found the word. We discovered it in Titus 3, 4. When the kindness and philanthropia, Christotes, kindness, philanthropia, God's great love for humanity, for humankind, God not only exists and says, I am, but he exists and says, I am for you. Romans 8.31, Ezekiel 36.9, I am for you, he says, behold, I am for you. So much so that the Latin scholars made a term for it, pronobis, P-R-O-N-O-B-I-S, for us, pro nobis. Pro nobis, for us, God for us, means that his existence and his existence for us are one. They cannot be separated. God's existence and God's existence for us, on our behalf, is one and cannot be separated. Just as God, in his essence and being and act and name, is the God who saves and cannot be other. He is the God who justifies and cannot be other. He condemns that which would condemn and destroy man. He justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. So listen carefully as this unfolds in the beginning of the days of awe. As the death of Christ was an exhibition of God's great love for humankind, all of it, in toto. So God's act in what is known as the last judgment will be a display and a manifestation of God's great love and universal mercy. 
The last judgment then will be God's Trinitarian act of philanthropy, God's love for all of humankind. Paul made a concise but very significant reference to this fact in Romans 2.16 in his battle with his opponent, with his opponent who said, there's going to be a day when there's going to be a reckoning and there will be a judgment in that day. In Romans 2.16, Paul inserts a phrase there and he says, yes, and according to my gospel, through Jesus Christ. That last judgment will be done through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And of course, he is the judged. The judgment will be through the judged to those who are justified by his resurrection. And that's all humankind. So Paul made a concise but significant reference to this fact in Romans 2.16. In the context of the day when God will judge the secrets of people, notice what it says, the day when God will judge the secrets of people, the secrets of all humankind. That's scary if you didn't read the Bible and only read Jack Chick's tract, This Was Your Life. That's because the stunning theological transforming truths that have hit Europe in some places never hit America. They never hit America. There's an astonishing pride among American Christendom. That heaven is a reward and hell is a punishment. And I'm going to heaven and it's my reward. And you're going to hell because it's your punishment. It's a great divide. It's the triumphalism of a Christian religion. It's no different from the triumphalism of the Muslim religion or any other religion that wants to make humankind binary between saved and damned. So hell is a reward or hell is a punishment, heaven is a reward. Well, if heaven is a reward, Jesus won the reward through his faithfulness unto death. And if hell is a punishment, then Jesus experienced it on the cross as he endured the full measure of the wages of sin on our behalf. Meaning, not that he suffered a penalty for us, But he suffered for us what would have been the ultimate result of sin's enslavement of us as a human race. You cannot imagine how much God loves not just you and me, but all of humanity. All of humanity, without exception. Every human being in all of its times. So God is going to judge the secrets of people. But Paul says, yes, he will. Through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Through Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. That's what kind of chimes in. The fundamentalist wants to say, there's going to be a day when God will judge the secrets of men. And Paul says, yes, according to my gospel, through Jesus Christ. That's good news. Otherwise, maybe Paul is in a toe-to-toe battle with Jack Chick and his tracks. Maybe. Not really, but something like that message. God, if God is going to judge the secrets of all human beings through Jesus Christ, then he's going to judge this secret that all human beings are in Christ Jesus. That's a secret. Let me explain it. By that I mean what is hidden that will be revealed is the reality of the reconciliation that Jesus Christ is. There is a reality. It is Jesus Christ. Outside of that reality, there is no permanent, lasting reality. The reality that is, is the reality that lasts in God's eyes. What is serious is the reconciliation between mankind and God that has occurred in Jesus Christ. He is the expiation of our sins. 
He is the reconciliation of man to God. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And it's hard for a man of pride to hear that the only man there is, is the man, Christ Jesus. But that can be explained. Don't worry. If God's going to judge the secrets of all human beings through Jesus Christ, then he will be judging that all humans are in Jesus Christ. You died, and your life is hid, and that means secreted away. Your life is secreted away in Christ, says Colossians 3.1. You died, and your life is cryptic, crypto secreted away. That's the secret that God will reveal when he reveals the secrets of men. It's a secret. It shouldn't be too much of a secret that we're in Christ because maybe we should be manifesting a little bit of what that means, but it's a secret. And what we are in Christ is not yet known, not yet revealed, not yet manifested. We don't know what we shall be, but we do know this, that when we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is, says 1 John 3, 2. He that has this hope in himself, she that has this hope in herself, purifies herself, purifies himself. That's not a moral purity as much as it is a purification from the thoughts of religion that make heaven a reward for the good and hell a punishment for the bad. Purify yourself. From that thought. That's not the gospel. Your lives are hid with Christ in God. There's a secret. Colossians 3.3. That's what's secret. And that's the secret that will come out in the last judgment. You say, wait a minute. That sounds strangely like good news. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It sounds sort of like the gospel. The This day of the revelation or the judgment of the secrets of humankind is part of what Paul says, my good news, my gospel. This is part of my gospel, my good news. He brackets the whole of Romans with that idea, my gospel in 2.16, and then all the way back into Romans 16.25 and 26, my gospel. I will not say I am of Paul, as opposed to being, I am of Cephas or any other person, but I will say this, I sure am of Paul's gospel. Because it's the gospel of God about his son. That's why. So then, listen carefully. How about this one? You died and your lives are hid with Christ in God does not finally apply only to those whom the apostle calls saints. Colossians 1.1, 1, 1, to the saints, 1, 1 and following, to the saints, you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Well, that only applies to saints. Well, if it does, then Paul wrote that letter to Colossae, a city in the Lycus Valley, so it must apply only to the saints in Colossae. Isn't that great for the saints in Colossae, a few hundred people whom Paul said, you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. Well, it's not true for those in Laodicea or Ephesus. Or Smyrna, is it? Or is it true of people who aren't even saints at all by designation? Well, let's consider that. You died and your lives are hid with Christ in God does not ultimately apply only to those whom the apostle calls saints and certainly not exclusively to those whom he calls saints only at Colossae. If we take seriously and when I say seriously, I mean dead seriously. There are certain things I take seriously. Here's one of them. 2 Corinthians 5.14. That since one died for all, then all died. If one died for all, all the sins of all the world of all time. He's talking about all humanity in all of its times. All humanity in all of its times became simultaneously together at one place, Calvary's cross. And it will come together again at another place called the judgment. For it's given to men once to die, 
And then the judgment. One of the best news verses in the whole Bible turned on its head to use people to cause people to be afraid. That's because of a clergy that likes to strong arm people into keep coming and keep giving. So then, and sometimes to keep funding an enterprise of unspeakable evil. And it is unspeakable evil to use a threat of hell over people to control their spiritual so-called lives. It is evil. It's astonishing that God's going to redeem even those who use that leverage over people. So much so that people I've even heard recently say, I need hell. Why? You need hell for what? To be good. See, I need hell to be good. Well, if you need hell to be good, where's God come in on the equation? Where's love come in? Where's faith come in? Where's grace come in? Where's mercy come in? Take away hell, you've taken away my whole Christian experience. Really? Well, he must have a hell of an experience. Since one died, or if one died, but it's a fulfilled condition, so it's, I think, proper to translate it. Since one died for all, then all died. Then we must take seriously that when all died, the lives of all from that moment on became hidden with Christ in God. You tell me what's the secret that's going to be revealed. The secrets of people. God's going to tell the secret. We know what you did last summer. We know who you did it to. We know this about you. God's going to show all that up. You know what God's going to show up about you? That you're in Christ and that Christ's in you. That's the secret. That's the judgment. You think God just exists and we're over here and we better behave? Or does God exist and in his existence exist for you? Exist for me. He exists for us and that's why he, his son became incarnate. He exists for you. He exists to save. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Who's there, was, who are his people? Well, obviously, that little group of people called Israel. No. Who are his people? The same people who fell in Adam are his people whom he recovers in grace. If one died for all, then all died. Then we must take seriously that when all died, the lives of all from that moment became hidden with Christ in God. That's what's the secret about the lives of people. That is the secret that comes out in the glaring light of God's appraising glory. His appraising glory is his grace. His appraising glory, the glory in which he appraises mankind, is his grace. Bonhoeffer, I appreciate him now. I used to not like his book, The Cost of Discipleship, because the emphasis fell on cost. Until I realized what's cost there is everything that isn't grace. And so I deeply appreciate Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed in April of 1945 for his supposed collusion with others to assassinate Hitler. But he was a remarkable theologian. He has one message that he preached to America that America couldn't handle today. It's because of the grace. I'm going to read his stuff now because of grace. But one thing he said, here's one word from Bonhoeffer. It's very brief. He says this, there is no word of God that goes beyond God's grace. There is no word of God that goes beyond God's grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Ethics. Now, all of this biblical truth I've been telling you, please notice it's biblical truth. 
all this biblical truth I'm telling you goes against the notion that heaven is a reward and that hell is a punishment. And that's not doctrine. That's ideology. It's an ideology behind a binary view of humanity cutting up humanity between the saved and the damned, which is used by triumphalist religions. That is, religions who are proud in their triumphalism over other people. The last judgment, then, is a demonstration of God's goodness. If it's his philanthropy, it's his goodness. Goodness. It is the philanthropia spoken of in Titus 3.4, which had its epiphany in the kenosis of Christ, the self-emptying of Christ which is discovered in, especially in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. This brought me way back to a book that I read a few years ago by Khaled Anatolius, a scholar who was, wrote a book called Retrieving Nicaea. And he quotes Gregory of Nyssa there, Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, one of the famous church fathers, and speaking of this self-humbling of Christ, Nisa wrote that it was from a fully divine state to a condition that shares and reverses human suffering. Jesus' kenosis, his self-emptying, kenao is the verb in Philippians 2.5 and following, kenao. His self-emptying or kenosis from which we are beginning to use the word canotic love, self-emptying, self-sacrificing self love, canotic, K-E-N-O-T-I-C, canotic love. Once again, Gregory Nyssa, the ancient church father, the patristic theologian, says that his self-emptying or kenosis was, quote, from a fully divine state to a condition that shares and reverses human suffering. An act that in no way detracted from the Son's full divinity. Go figure. He goes on to write, Khaled Anatolius does, the relation between God and the world is grounded in and ordered to the relation between the Father and the Son. The pro-nobis which means for us, of the Son, is located in his self-abasement, which in turn is grounded in the philanthropia, the philanthropy of the divine nature. I knew I saw that word philanthropy somewhere. You probably remembered it, Joe, retrieving Nicaea. Again, I'll say it again. The relationship between God and the world grounded, was, is grounded and ordered to the relationship between the Father and the Son. The pronobus, which we know is for us of the Son, is located in his self-abasement or his self-humiliation, which in turn is grounded in the philanthropy of the divine nature. So I call this, as others already do, canonic love. It is... Expressed in total weakness, this canotic love. It's expressed in total weakness, which is really a manifestation of the eternal strength of God's omnipotent love. That's my words. Anatolios goes on then to say, quote, Gregory defines divine goodness itself by that very narrative. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-agents of the narrative of the manifestation of divine goodness and are thus co-equal sharers in the simple perfection of that goodness. Now, that's hugely theological, but that's what I blend into my teaching. Exegesis, theology. Ancient scholars, present scholars. Brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, collaboration, and the Holy Spirit, of course. Add to this a quote, I can't avoid almost any series, I can't avoid giving Pseudo Dionysius' words in his book called The Divine Names, chapter 4, section 693b. I've almost 
memorize where it's found. Divine Names, chapter 4, section 693b. He says, let us move on to the name good. The name good. He relates the name God to the name good. Just one more O. Which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God from all other names. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness. This essential good, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. That's the phrase that bit me and infected me years ago. This essential good, capital G-O-O-D, which is what God is, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. Remember Ephesians 1.10 again. God's initial mystery of his will is to recapitulate all things in Christ. That means salvifically. In the fullness of times or when times become simultaneous. Call it the eschaton. Call it the moment. Call it the last judgment. Call it the parousia. Call it the time. Just on the cusp of God becoming all in all. Under the rubric of God's goodness, rubric simply meaning title or category of God's goodness, the goodness of his kindness and his philanthropy, these are both words that don't go beyond God's grace, but are manifestations of it. God's kindness and his philanthropy, Titus 3, 4, is finally extended to all things through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ all the way through to the day of the last judgment. So-called. So both the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment involve salvific, saving, call it salutary if you want, judgments. And they express to the very last that God is for us. Heart of the heart of the heart of the breathtaking and breath-giving center of Romans. God is for us. God exists for us. And God did not spare his son, but freely gave him over on behalf of us and in place of us. Pantone. All. Just like the last word that we studied in Revelation is all, pantone, the last word we'll study in Romans is not at the end, but at the dead center, the living center of Romans, pantone in 8.32, all. Let me show you what I mean, and I'll take the last few minutes to look at this. Hebrews 9.26, shift gears, wake up, let's go. Days of awe, Hebrews 9.26, Some days, like last week, I hollered almost the whole message. This time, same awe, lower key, teaching, exegesis, verse by verse, words, words that mean, theology, collaboration. Hebrews 9, 26. But now, once, at the juncture of the ages. There's another Greek word for you, and I won't write it down, but I'll just, it'll be in print. Suntelea, S-U-N-T-E-L. I will write it down. S-U-N-T-E, I got to keep in practice, E-L-E-I-A. Suntelea. And you don't get it from, you don't get the meaning from a lexicon or a biblical dictionary. Suntelea means at the close of one age and at the beginning of another age, at the beginning of the the end of one age and at the beginning of another age, at the close of the ages. Speaking of times becoming simultaneous. Now, once in the juncture of the ages, I would call it, the juncture of the ages, that's right where the cross is. He, who, Christ, in context, Appeared, just like the word appeared, different word, but same meaning, just like the kindness and philanthropy of our God appeared in Titus 3, 4. So here, Christ appeared 
for the removal of sin. Athetasis is the word for removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, once at the juncture of the ages, that's another time when all times became simultaneous, we could say, when all sins became located in one place and where Jesus Christ offered and appeared himself for the removal of sin. Removal of sin. And again, suntileia, and some, some of these dictionaries do help. It means a combination in Liddell Scott. Thayer talks about it as to bring to a fulfillment or to come to pass. It means a point in time marking the close of an age or the conclusion or the completion. Christ appeared to put away sin, athetasis, which means expiation, put away sin by the offering of himself or by the offering that is himself. That's why he still stands as the expiation. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Hilasterion, the expiation, or literally the place of the mercy seat for us, where mercy triumphed over judgment for us. That's Jesus Christ. Who is he? Where mercy triumphed over judgment. There, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only serious reality. That's why I can interpret Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing, meaning they're not serious. You're not serious, are you? Circumcision, you're not serious, are you? Uncircumcision? What's serious is a faith that works by love. Christ's faithfulness working in a dynamic sphere of love. Then again, he says it in Galatians 6.15. Circumcision and uncircumcision, not serious. What's serious is a new creation. And those who walk according to the rule of a faith that works by love are the present Israel of God. You want radical biblical? There it is. To put away sin, Thayer says, athetasis means abolition, to abolish it utterly. It's from atheteo, meaning to do away with. It means to deprive a law of force. So it means to deprive sin of its enslaving force and sin of its accusing force altogether. Abolition abolition and removal then are the best senses. Christ appeared once at the juncture of the ages, end of the old, beginning of the new, the juncture. The juncture is still with us right now. That's why we are crucified with Christ. The juncture is still with us right now. The cross of the ages, the axis on which the ages turn is the cross. The only serious reality is the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified because Jesus Christ and him crucified is the only serious reality. Now, these are all things that are leading up to Doctrines that I don't think any of us were yet able to bear. Not yet, but we will be able to bear it. And you're learning how to be able to bear it even now. This is a remarkable similarity to Romans 3.25. Turn there as we close. Romans 3.25. Notice the remarkable similarity between Hebrews 9.26 and 3.25 of Romans. Christ Jesus is the subject in verse 24 because, of course, it says all sinned and keep coming short of the glory of God, being justified, what? Freely by the grace of God that is in the redemption by Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. Please notice that he displayed him publicly. Not everybody saw him there. But in the last judgment, everyone will. That's the point. Whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat. There's that word hilasterion, meaning the means of expiation. He was displayed publicly on the cross as the means of expiation or as the way God is taking away sin, we could say. Through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood, is how I translate it, which is his sacrificial death. For the demonstration here, exhibition, display, demonstration 
of God's righteousness. See all these things coming into play here in this very condensed and packed little unit of doctrine. I say God's righteousness who passed over the sins that were previously committed in verse 26 by his forbearing patience. Yes, he says, for a demonstration of his righteousness in the present time of crisis. The juncture of the ages goes on now to show that he is righteous. Call him just if you want to righteous and just and the justifier of that one, not any old one, that one Jesus by means of his faithfulness, which is namely Jesus. So we have here the demonstration of the sacrifice by which sin was taken away. Now I go to one of my favorite lexicons called Lunita. And they say the means by which sins are forgiven here in Hebrews 9.26 is the word hilasterion, which also translates as mercy seat. And here's what they say, Lu and Nida. They say, quite, quote, Christ himself is the means by which our sins are forgiven. Then they quote 1 John 2.2. Though some traditional translations render hilasterion, which is found in Romans 3.25, propitiation... This involves a wrong interpretation of the term in question. Propitiation is essentially a process by which one does a favor to a person in order to make him or her favorably disposed. But listen carefully to this. But in the New Testament, God is never the object of propitiation since he is already on the side of people. And hilasterion denotes the means of forgiveness, not propitiation. Now, add to that our dear friend Fleming Rutledge, ladies and gentlemen. She quotes C.K. Barrett on his commentary on Romans, and it says this, it would be wrong to neglect the fact that expiation has, as it were, the effect of propitiation. The sin that might justly have excited God's wrath is expiated at God's will and therefore no longer does so. And then she adds a comment by Charles Cusar from his Theology of the Cross. The propitiation is a secondary result rather than a primary cause of atonement. The atonement. We are in the days of awe coming up to Yom, the day, Kippur, which is from the word Kafar, which is the cover of Hilasterion, the mercy seat. Approach it with awe. Awe. So God will provide, says Genesis 22 8. God, Isaac, Little Yitzhak, whose name means laughter. Perhaps Abraham had a slight laugh. Little Isaac, my son, Yitzhak. God will provide himself a lamb. God, we can say, we're on a different side of history as Abraham. We can say God has provided himself one from the flock one from the human race the flock and the people are one as Psalm 100 puts it God has provided one from the flock his son in whom I am well pleased it's rooted in the idea of a refusal to acknowledge, stay with me just for a couple more moments. This isn't even as long as a football game. It's hardly as long as a half with all the timeouts. Listen carefully. This word abolition in Hebrews 9.26 is rooted in the idea of a refusal to acknowledge the validity of something. God refuses to acknowledge the validity of of sin itself, where you're regarded. And so, 
Guess what it is? The cross is God's great big no! Exclamation point to sin. And at the same time, it's God's emphatic simultaneously his emphatic yes to his creation, including all of humanity in all of our times. And so, Karl Barth, I work for you. I want you to know I'm doing stuff. I'm finding stuff. I'm reading stuff. Karl Barth, whom I was always told by fundamentalist preachers, you shouldn't read him. He's a neo-orthodox And I always wondered, what the hell does that mean? What's a neo-orthodox? Does that mean he's orthodox like some of the people that were correct doctrinally and he's a new one? If so, I think I'll read the guy. But he said this in his commentary on Romans, which he finished the sixth edition in 1933. And you think I've changed and revised things. And he even used the King James English, a Swiss theologian in Germany who got booted from Germany during Hitler's reign, using King James English, says, He that judgeth is also he that restoreth all things. That's direct quote from Barth. He that judgeth is, he, is also he that restoreth all things. Karl Barth, the Epistle to the Romans, page 77. Again, he says this, judgment is not annihilation, By it, all things are established. Cleansing is not a process of emptying, he says. It is an act of fulfillment. God has not forsaken men, he says. But God is, long hyphen, wait for it, true. Because God is true, he hasn't forsaken us. And one more time, and I love this one because this explains to me what the scriptures are more than any other definition of the scriptures at this time in my life in these days of awe. Quote, the oracles of God, the oracles of God are the comprehensible signs of the incomprehensible truth that though the world is incapable of redemption, yet there is a redemption for the world. That's simple. There's so many ads now that want you to get their product because they'll say, not only is it simple, it's easy, which I always thought the same thing. Simple and easy were the same thing. It's simple. It's easy. It's awesome. Why is it awesome? Because it's simple and it's easy. This is simple to me, though. The oracles of God, the scriptures, are the incomprehensible, or the comprehensible, that is, understandable signs of the incomprehensible truth. That's a truth you just can't wrap your brain around. That though the world is incapable of redemption, yet there is a redemption for the world. So here's my conclusion. What God accomplished in Christ at the juncture of the ages and what was publicly displayed for a small segment of humanity in a certain segment of time to witness will be universally manifested to all human beings in all of their times when all of the times will be simultaneous and all of humanity will be together by the resurrection of the dead and the transformation from mortality to deathlessness for those of us who still are remaining on the earth at the moment of the parousia, that will be a moment when a word of grace from the mouth of God, who is love, will be a word which no word can surpass. Then the word will be Yeshua. Yahweh saves And I'm going to say that one more time again because this is what makes me stand in awe of God before the 10 days that lead to the atonement. What God accomplished in Christ at the juncture of the ages and what was publicly displayed for a small segment of humanity to witness in a small segment of time 
will we will be at what is known as the last judgment universally manifested and remember Isaiah 40 and verse 5 all flesh shall see together the salvation of the Lord the salvation of the Lord is Yeshua it is Yahoshua the salvation of Yahweh and that's the name Jesus all flesh shall see Yeshua Jesus in his saving significance and they will see it in the sense of experiencing his saving power all flesh together Isaiah 40 and verse 5 quoted in Luke 3 6 referred to through Daniel 7 13 and 14 in Zechariah 12 10 and Revelation 1 7 every eye will see every knee will genuflect every mouth will open in praise come on that's why isn't that gotten today and why do people stand up in a conference and say to the young people who grabbed a hold of that message you shouldn't fellowship with that man who said that message why why is that because they don't know what they're saying simultaneous all humanity in all of its times together at one time by the resurrection of the dead there will be a moment which will last permanently when a word of grace from the mouth of God who is love will be a word which no word can surpass God in these last times has spoken to us in his son father thank you and I just have to thank you when you manifest such things to us when you reveal such things to us it seems we're not done with them until we thank you for them and I thank you 